Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and I'm deeply honored today to welcome a very special guest to the new diplomatist, Mr. Robert B. Zolik. Mr. Zolik has served as Deputy Secretary of State, Undersecretary, and Counselor of the State Department at various points in his career, as well as U.S. Trade Representative and Deputy Chief of Staff at the White House. More recently, he's also served as President of the World Bank, and his experience spans six U.S. presidencies beginning during the Cold War, continuing on now to his time as Senior Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, where he contributes to the Applied History Project. Mr. Zolg, it is an absolute honor and privilege to welcome you to the New Diplomas Podcast. Well, Garrison, glad to be with you. And so I invited Mr. Zolg on today to discuss a number of topics, but in particular his magnificent recent publication, a book called America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy, and foreign policy, and we're going to delve right into it. And sir, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind opening the discussion with asking, you know, it's been observed recently that diplomatic histories are an essential yet sadly increasingly rare work of writing. And I was wondering if you could unpack for the listeners what some of your motivations were and and personal objectives were in crafting this magnificent work of American diplomatic history. Sure. So when I was in government, I often drew upon history as I thought through problems. And so I wanted to write this book to encourage others, particularly in, in younger generations, to think in those terms. So as you know, many foreign policy courses these days focus on international relations theories. And they're intellectually challenging, they're interesting to debate, but what I discovered when I was in those various jobs you mentioned was they turned out to be of limited use when you're dealing with issues like German unification or trade strategy or Darfur and Sudan or World Bank issues. So what I try to do in this book is take individual episodes and people to focus on practical problem solving and have a sense of of how it works in, in reality. Some of your audience may recall Henry Kissinger wrote a book titled Diplomacy in the 1990s where he used history to talk about foreign policy. But given Dr. Kissinger's perspective, he tends to use the European real politic framework. And this book really draws on the American experience and ideas. So so it's the pluralism of American thought. And I suppose one other aspect is in various jobs, I often had younger colleagues, and I often asked them, maybe even tortured them a little bit about (laughs) sort of what history they knew, because I didn't really have a sense of what they'd learned in school. And I discovered, so far as they had learned about history, it tended to be from World War II on. And so the book also does a lot about the first 150 years of American history, where there's some great figures that that I wanted to recall from the past. And I suppose one other aspect that I hadn't foreseen, but as I've talked to some university audiences, I've been encouraged, which is that by focusing on problem solving, it, it recognizes that history can offer insights on how to do better, not just a sense of, of, of timeless obstacles. So 
So the focus that I used in the book was to tell stories of leading Americans over 200 years. So I start with Ben Franklin and the revolution, and I go to George H.W. Bush in, in 89, 92. But then I have an afterward where I also focus on the president's afterwards in the light of five traditions. So would you mind unpacking what those five traditions are for those who are less familiar with the book, those, those themes that you see running throughout the tapestry of American diplomatic history? Sure. So again, the the heart of the book is the people and the stories. So I try to design the book in a way that is very readable for people that, that like stories and history. But I use the five traditions as a way of pulling them together. So the first is the importance of North America. And what I find intriguing on that topic is that if you go on most foreign policy websites these days, you'll find discussions of Europe and Asia and Middle East and sometimes Latin America and Africa, but almost nothing on North America, which of course was the heart of our policy in the 19th century. I argue it was very important in the 20th century too. We almost went to war again with Mexico in 1916. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis, the big nuclear showdown, the Caribbean. AFTA, which was a whole reshaping of our relationship with Mexico. And in some ways, it's captured by a quote I found from Ronald Reagan in 1979, where he was launching his campaign for the presidency. And he said, you know, we'd be better off if our nearest neighbors are stronger, not weaker. And it's time that we stop thinking about Mexico and Canada as foreigners, which is pretty amazing from the, the current context. Yes, indeed. And then if you think about it more recently, if you, if you look at the polls for the American public, they're interested in topics like immigration, sort of economics, environment, sort of crime and narcotics. And those are all part of the North American agenda. But also, I always look at North America not just as our, our region, but as a home continent in the global environment. So part of the idea of North America is to strengthen our continental base in terms of our competition with Asia or Europe or other regions of the world. So if you have three democracies, over 500 million people, energy self-sufficiency and ability to export, better demographics, if we see our human capital as a resource, you start to see North America as a way of influencing U.S. power abroad. The second one is trade and transnationalism and technology. And what I wanted to emphasize with this point was that from the very start of the United States, 1776, with our first model treaty that John Adams created, you could see that trade was about more than economic efficiency. It was about sort of opening opportunities for private actors. And so it's a way of having private ties with the world. And recall, this is the era of, of mercantilism and empires and state-run systems. And trade has been obviously both an economic and a political and international relations issue for all of American history. The third tradition is the importance of alliance and order. Many of your listeners may recall Washington's caution about entangling alliances and or no permanent alliances and Jefferson about entangling alliances. And so for the first 150 years of American history, we basically avoid alliances, but a lot of the relationships are ways of dealing internationally without alliances, whether economically, whether with international law arrangements, with arms control, a whole series of other set of efforts. But then in 1947-49, the United States invents a new type of alliance and economic system, which has been the heart of our policy for some 70 years. The Trump administration in some ways challenged that. And so the question is, where will we go with that today? And then the fourth tradition 
is the importance of congressional and public support. And again, this is a topic that many foreign policy experts often ignore. You can see, while Kennan was a was an amazing thinker, you could see why they never let him go up to the hill and talk to members of Congress because <laughs> he wasn't very good on this. But I focus on particular Senator Vandenberg and the Truman administration and the role that he played. If you think more recently, whether it's people like Senator McCain or Luger or others, then the question will be, what, who will step forward in the Congress today on those issues? And the fifth and final tradition I call America's purpose. And I, I don't refer to exceptionalism because many countries think they're exceptional. But I, the point I can make best is through an anecdote, which is that for people who still carry cash, someday look at the back of a dollar bill. You may never have focused on it, but that's the great seal of the United States. And you'll see this unfinished pyramid, noticed it's unfinished, with the eye of providence above it. And the phrase, novus ordo seclorum, new order of the ages. So from the very start, the founders of the United States were thinking about a larger purpose. And it's my belief that that purpose has evolved over the course of centuries. It, but there are three core elements. One is the international context. The second is the public support. What will the citizenry back? And then third, some notion about aspirations for freedom or democracy or creating at least space for republics in a hostile world. And so that, again, echoes today with the challenges of the Biden administration. You can really see the the brilliance of recognizing those five traditions in particular and how, how cleanly they do weave through every aspect of American foreign policy. Even if there is an evolution over time, those five traditions do remain dominant forces throughout American thinking over the last several centuries. And I wanted to focus the, the opening of this podcast's attention on a section of the book that I particularly found fascinating. You, you devote passages to some of the more forgotten annals of American foreign policy, as you mentioned, the pre-World War II era being a time period of immense importance to U.S. history, and, and particularly diplomatic history, and yet so often overlooked. One such case that you focus on was Lincoln and Seward's brinkmanship and negotiations with European states to prevent overseas intervention during the American Civil War. And could you walk through the listeners? It, it's good timing. We're about 160 years on now from the opening of that conflict. Could you walk the listeners through some of the significant actions and strategies that you found were undertaken by Lincoln's administration, particularly via Seward, to keep powers like Britain out of the war, and in the words of Lincoln, to fight one war at a time? Yeah, that's a wonderful story, because, as you mentioned, you know, there's many books on the Civil War about battles and generals and slavery and societal effects, but you find almost none on the issue of foreign policy. And as I draw out, the critical issue was how to avoid foreign intervention, or as Lincoln referred to it, you know, fight one war at a time. And you put your finger on it, Garrison, which was what Lincoln and Seward tried to do was they combined a threat, but also restraint, which was a brinksmanship policy to keep particularly Britain and France out of the war. And one of the first incidents takes place late in 1861, so that's the first year of the war, when an American Navy captain intercepts a British ship called the Trent that's carrying Confederate commissioners to London. And there's an outrage on this in London, almost leads to a war. And in fact, there's a note sent by the British that is, is toned down by Prince Albert shortly before he dies. It's an amazing little story that's sort of lost in the mists of time. But you then see how Lincoln and Seward use creative lawyering basically to step down and avoid the conflict. And then in 1862, there's another sort of crisis point. And this was brought to my attention a number of years ago 
by a military historian from Britain, some of your listeners may know, Sir Michael Howard, a wonderful military historian. And at a seminar I, I had, he, he brought attention, we were talking about issues of humanitarian intervention, and he said, well, what about humanitarian intervention in 1862, where the Europeans might have said there's this terrible slaughter going on in the United States, and maybe we should seek a ceasefire or a mediation. So the insight from this is that sometimes in such conflicts, you have to wait until one side wins or, or the parties want peace. And I, what I describe in the book is how Britain kind of edges towards this, but realizes that it's not going to likely lead the North to step back. The North may take action against Canada. So they basically temporize. And the next one is the story of the, the Emancipation Proclamation of September 1862. So Lincoln and Seward thought that this action against slavery might actually build support in Europe. But interestingly enough, the first reaction in Britain is quite hostile. One has to understand the context of the times. Remember, in 1857, there had been in India what the British called the Indian Mutiny. The Indians might call it something else. But so the people in London didn't like the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation calling for what they described as a servile insurrection. However, this is where you see the story of public diplomacy come in. Lincoln and Seward start to work in the Anglo-American community to fight the cause of slavery among working people in Britain. There's a famous letter they write to the working men of Manchester, and they turn the public opinion against the South because of the slavery issue. And there's a couple other ones, too. There's also the French intervention in Mexico and how the United States handles that. But at the end, I also draw attention to Seward, who I think in some ways is an underappreciated strategist. He has a very interesting vision for U.S. policy after the Civil War in 1865. One point is an idea, again, that you see in some of the speeches, the great Senate speeches before the Civil War, but it has sort of been lost a little bit to, to time, which is the powerful idea of the Union and how this was seen as an experiment, as a republic. And then after holding the Union together and defeating slavery, this affected the thoughts of Americans about how others might interact around the world. Seward also saw commerce as a magnet, goes to that trade point. He talked about the notion of a North American Union, not through building empires, but through the attraction among the three republics. Because recall, Canada was created as a republic in 1867. The Mexicans pushed out the French and the Habsburg Empire in 1866-1867. So you created this new opportunity. And then what Seward's primarily known for today is probably the purchase of Alaska. What people may not recall is he also acquired what was then known as Brooks Island. It's later became known as Midway Island, which was the important scene of the, the battle in World War II in 1942. He tried to buy Hawaii, but he wasn't successful. But of course, we later acquire Hawaii in 1898-99. Same with the Virgin Islands, the, the Danish properties, which we finally acquired early in the 20th century. He, he almost got British Columbia. There was a movement in British Columbia to join the United States because the population was only 10 or 20,000 people. They felt separated from the East. And this is a little interesting story from the Canadian point of view. And the Canadian Confederation was formed in 1867. In part, London did this through the North America Act because they were afraid of this powerful United States that might have resented British policy in the Civil War. So the four eastern provinces get together, and they reach out to British Columbia, and they say, what do you want? And British Columbia said, well, we want a transcontinental railway and some help with our debts. 
And so that's how British Columbia stayed with Canada as opposed to came to the United States. And in light of some of the maneuvers of the Trump administration, it was amusing that Seward also was looking to try to get Greenland and Iceland. You know, he wasn't doing this as an empire builder. He was basically trying to secure the Caribbean and ocean approaches for the United States. But it's an interesting part of our history that probably most people have, have forgotten. It really is. It's truly a fascinating read when I went through the chapter myself to see the really the, the brilliance of it, the, the strategic foresight to, to think in such grand terms, not only to deal with the immediate problem of an internal insurrection, but to keep an eye on the external and the future as well. And, you know, as you've mentioned before, sir, it seems like so much of that first period, that pre-World War II period of American history, it's almost as if the, the leadership at the diplomatic level in our country, they're trying to find a new way, as you said, a new order to restructure the world, to pursue something other than the same broken European system. And one of the most dramatic examples of that that I think your book points out is Charles Evans Hughes in an event that took place almost a century ago in 1921 with the Washington Naval Conference, which your chapter opens with the provocative title, The Speech That Sank More Battleships Than All the Admirals. Could you unpack that that arms control and, and the significance of that conference? Yeah, so Charles Evans Hughes is a fascinating character. Again, probably most people have either never heard of him or only have a minor sense. He was... He was a very successful governor in New York. He ran against Wilson for president in 1916, only lost the presidency through California in about 3,600 votes. So he's a man that almost became president. He later becomes chief justice of the Supreme Court and is a very well-known successful chief justice. But in 1921, he becomes secretary of state for Warren Harding. And it's important, and this is part of the story of problem solving, to recall the context. Woodrow Wilson had just failed with the Versailles Peace Treaty. The Senate sort of felt that it kind of had the bit in its teeth. And even a Republican senator at the time said, it doesn't matter who's Secretary of State, the Senate will run it all. So part of the challenge for Hughes was to being, in a sense, the antidote to the Wilson experience in the failure of the Versailles Treaty. And as you said, it's a question of how does the United States engage internationally without alliances, without the League of Nations, without some of the European politics. And so what brings the story together is, in a very practical way, what Hughes recognizes is there's a very strong movement in the Congress and even globally for naval arms control. And part of this is the, the disappointment that people feel after World War I. There's budget pressure. But importantly, there's also a lot of international issues in East Asia in particular that hadn't been addressed or the United States had not been part of since we didn't act with the Versailles Peace Treaty. And so Hughes organizes this conference, the first major international conference in the United States. And what I try to draw out in the chapter is the importance of not seeing arms control separate from regional security. So what is important in these negotiations is that they're not only dealing with naval arms control, but they're dealing with security questions in, in Northeast Asia and the Eastern Pacific. So I try to draw out that people need to see arms control as a process, and that even after doing your treaties, you have to constantly reassess, reinforce, sort of redirect it. And of course, one always has to be aware of technological change. So one of the interesting things I discovered was Nimitz, who's one of the, the Pacific Fleet commander of World War II, does his Naval War College thesis on the challenge of fighting across the Pacific if you don't have bases, which we agreed not to fortify. The Marines develop expeditionary capacity. 
And of course, the primary weaponry in World War II, aircraft carriers and submarines, were not regulated by the system. So it's a point about seeing arms control as an ongoing process. And the relevance today is, you know, when you see articles about negotiations for nuclear weapons with North Korea or Iran, I think you really have to look at the larger regional security context. I don't think you can see those arms control negotiations without understanding, in the case of North Korea, for example, how that has been a pivot point among Russia, China, Japan, Korea, the United States. And similar with Iran, you have to look at it as part of a regional security arrangement. So what I try to do with each of these stories is give the color to give people a sense of how things were conducted, how people tried to solve problems at the time, but also plant the seeds for people to think a little bit about what insights it might give for today. You know, it's, it really is an excellent approach to the subject. And again, going back to one of the points you made early on in this episode, when you talked about how so many of the courses, the, the teaching done currently at universities on the subject of foreign policy and international relations, it's so theoretically based. I know personally my own experience attending several very good universities, but nonetheless, it was always a focus on, are you a neoliberal? Are you a realist? Are you a constructivist? You know, what what is your perspective on that? And then what you see is, yes, theories do play a role, but nonetheless, it really is this these traditions that you outlined in the book that you see at work with Seward, you see at work with Hughes, both domestic and international factors, like you said, the Senate, uh, regional security, arms control, you know, the Union, this history progressing and evolving, but nonetheless maintaining these traditions along the course of American diplomacy. Gareth, modern... just to draw that out, yes. just to draw that out a little bit more Absolutely. For, for students in the audience. You see, you, you you put your finger on kind of the heart of what I wanted to relay, which was that, yeah, I have nothing against the different international relations theories. I can debate them. But if you ask yourself, you know, think about a problem that one is dealing with, you know, so today, whether it's China or Iran or whatever the issue or Russia, you know, to be honest, you have to ask, well, how far do the theories take you in mm. terms of dealing with the regional real issues? Indeed. And what I, what I wanted to convey was... In, in my experience, which covered a number of decades in different regions, and in my reading of history, those theories are a little detached from the way people really work. So I wanted to give students and, and people interested in the subject a sense of the, the practical problem-solving nature, because that's what most people are trying to do. Well, and I would love to unpack your own personal experience with that, which segues nicely to the next, next section, which would be your personal work alongside former Secretary of State James Baker at the end of the Cold War. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, obviously I was not there at the time, but, you know, there really wasn't a theory ready to go for the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, the reunification of Germany, building a, a post-Cold War framework. At least I've never read an explanation that said, well, the realists were best prepared or the internationalists were best prepared. It was a pragmatic approach, largely, was it not? So perhaps you could unpack some of your time, your firsthand accounts, some examples of that during talks for the reunification of Germany, working along alongside Baker and the H.W. Bush administration in a time of severe flux and change, and yet, in many respects, we look back on it now as one of our most successful diplomatic periods in the modern era. So I was the lead negotiator for the United States on German unification, working for Secretary Baker and, and, and President Bush. And it's a good example of the combination of, of history and strategy, but with practical events. So I would maintain that our diplomacy operated at two levels. One, we did have a sense of history and strategy, but also a feel for forces on the ground. So on the historic side, our first priority was the German question. So many historians that focused on Gorbachev in this area focus on the Russia question. But what I mean by the German question was, first, 
from 1871 on, after Germany had unified, the German question was, how do you deal with a powerful state in the center of Europe with no secure borders? Hmm. And we went through two world wars as one way of dealing with it. And then after 1945, the answer was to have two German states with the Federal Republic of Germany, the West Germany, integrated with Western Europe and allied with the United States. So as these events were taking place in 89, our strategy was to support a unified democratic Germany. It had been our ally and partner for 40 years. But we wanted to do it within NATO and integrated with the EU. And so we thought that the experience of the past 40 years would be good for Germany and as well as good for its neighbors, East and West. So the history led to our sense of the strategy we wanted to have in unification. We also wanted to avoid what we called a Versailles victory. We used that shorthand by meaning a agreement that would plant the seeds of its own destruction, as mm. the Versailles Treaty did. And so in the case of Germany, something that people didn't focus on much at the time, but we were we were adamant about not having any discrimination against a united Germany. We use the term singularization. And that might seem like sort of a far-off possibility, but if you think about events in Eastern Europe today with the rise of populism and other aspects, I thought it was very important to avoid anything that could have a future generation of Germans saying, well, why are we being discriminated against? Why are we being singled out? Now, the second level, however, was the importance of recognizing the facts on the ground. And here, the story of German unification is driven by the German people, East and West. They become a diplomatic force. They create the momentum for unification. And there's some antecedents to this. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, Berlin had been the capital of the Third Reich in 1945. In 1948 and 49, during the airlift, it becomes basically Freedom City. Similar, there's an uprising against the Soviets in 53. You have 1961 with the, with the Berlin Wall, and of course, 1989. So this is the story about how people on the ground can shape policy. And what we could see was that if events had stalled, if the people wanted unification and four powers or others had gotten in the way, this could lead to a crisis. You could have action taken against Soviet soldiers, uh, you know, the U.S., the Stasi might create an incident. But we also figured out how to use this momentum as an impetus to press decisions. So we could use the facts on the ground to force, frankly, the Soviet Union and for a time Britain and France to face decisions on German unification that they didn't want to face. And so to connect the history and strategy with events on the ground, we created a process. This was the two plus four process with the idea you had the two German states who would focus on their internal unification. The four powers would deal with the settlement of the four power rights after World War II. And this became a process to partly channel the legal work, but also to coordinate all the other pieces that had to fall in place. So as part of this, we had a very large negotiation of conventional forces in Europe. You had changes in NATO. You had the CSE become the OSCE. You had basically a series of complex transition arrangements. And from a historical sense, recall, all this takes place within about 10 or 11 months. And we always had a fear that, you know, that with the clock ticking, something could go wrong. So keep in mind that the wall opens up in November of 89. The 2 plus 4 agreement is signed in September of 90. Germany unifies in October of 90. But in August of 90, you had Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And my bosses were pulled off to sort of focus on that coalition. 
By December of 90, so a few months later, Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister, resigns in frustration. And the next August, you have the coup that threatens Gorbachev. And one other little point that I try to draw out in my writings on this subject, and it's relevant to policy today, is none of this diplomacy would have worked if you didn't have very strong trust relationships built among the key players. In particular, Chancellor Kohl in Germany, Genscher, the foreign minister, Baker and Bush, and Chevernadze and Gorbachev. That is still part of, of making diplomacy work. Well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating history. I'm absolutely loving this discussion right now. And I do want to probe just one more aspect of that before we leave the subject and head to some of the final questions, which is it's well noted that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom was somewhat skeptical, I think it's fair to say, of German reunification, given the experience of Britain, even within her lifetime during the Second World War, in an era where we are facing skepticism regarding trust in U.S. leadership and foreign policy. What lessons could you draw from your time during that era where the Bush administration successfully cooperated with, sometimes let out in front, sometimes cajoled London to help join that effort in something they actually had hesitancy to to see, the reunification of Germany? Yeah, this was a very sensitive moment because the United States had always had a close partnership with Great Britain and a lot of respect for Margaret Thatcher. Her view, as you said, was partly informed by 20th century history. She was fearful of of a united Germany. She thought it was better if there would be two German states. But she also was worried about its effect on Gorbachev. So she saw Gorbachev as a reformer, and she was concerned about that aspect. But as early as May of 89, President Bush, in an interview, makes the point that you know he saw nothing wrong with German unification of uh, democracy, 40 years old of an ally. So part of our commitment was a 40-year-old promise to an ally. Part of it was a recognition of reality. And as I said, you got events on the ground. And so how do you try to channel those? So a lot of, when you talk about alliance leadership, one of the aspects that Bush and Baker were most skilled at was you have to have an eye on what is your core objective. So as I said, our core objective was a democratic unification in NATO, which at the time people thought was going to be impossible to achieve, and also as part of the European system. And around that, as an alliance leader, you have to listen to other players, adapt, kind of perhaps give some concessions on secondary issues while you keep focused on the main things that you want to do. And that's, of course, where the U.S.-German partnership was critical. But eventually Britain and France came along and we worked you know, quite cooperatively in the process. But it's a good story in that sometimes people assume that alliance leadership means the U.S. makes dictates and everybody falls in line. Well, that's not very likely to work. Kissinger used to refer to that as fantasy negotiations. <laughs> and so if you're going to try to be successful in international problem solving, you have to sort of figure out what are the key issues for you and how you bring others along. And part of the story about U.S. as an alliance leader is the skill in doing this and, and kind of where you draw the line. So in the Cold War, you know, the United States sort of risk conflict with the Soviet Union for Berlin. And that was our key sense of if we didn't defend Berlin, you could very likely lose support in Germany and the importance of Western Europe. On the other hand, you have Vietnam. Is Vietnam absolutely critical for your sort of security future in East Asia? So alliance management is a special skill, and I try to use a number of the chapters in the post-World War II period to kind of talk about that. 
You were U.S. Trade Representative in the early 2000s era, and you saw firsthand negotiations with, with China, with Japan, with different groups. You recently wrote an article just a few days ago, it was published in the Wall Street Journal, entitled The Trade Two-Step as Part of Biden's Diplomatic Dance. And I'll read the top line. It says, the president can't afford to ignore trade, lest friends in Asia conclude they should work with China. Could you unpack some of your, your motivations in writing this article at this particular time and, and maybe some of the highlighting points for those who might not have read it? So the point is, you know, the Biden administration comes in after Trump as the disruption of relations with allies and international economics. And Biden's first priority, understandably, is at home with dealing with the pandemic and sort of economic recovery. He then is trying to take what political scientists would call the transnational issues and and deal with them as part of his international agenda, whether it's immigration issues, whether it's pandemic and biological security issues, whether it's climate change. I think he's had some initial stumbles on that. But my main point with this op-ed was that the missing piece is the trade agenda. And that's because the domestic politics of trade are difficult for him. He's got protectionist constituencies and he's got a big agenda. He would kind of like to put the issue on the back burner. But what I was trying to do in that piece, and it builds off what we've talked about, is that trade is so much of a part of America's interaction with the world that I'm afraid that if he puts it on the back burner, that his international strategy will falter. And in particular, I draw attention, as you did, the countries in East Asia right now are not only looking for the U.S. security presence, they're trying to decide, do we intend to be an economic player in the region? Because China is very present. It's got the economic gravity and the geographic propinquity of, and, and its size. And frankly, countries in the region don't want to be totally dependent on China. But if the United States doesn't have a serious trade and economic presence, well, they have to face that reality. So the Obama administration was too slow in negotiating this Trans-Pacific Partnership, and eventually Trump trashed it. I think Biden will be afraid politically to move it forward. So I propose other ideas, particularly in the digital area, where I think given the pandemic, you've seen an acceleration of the digital trade aspect. And what I highlight is traditionally the United States as a cutting edge economy would frame the rules and standards for international trade because we're on the cutting edge. So whether it be services or technology or intellectual property. So when we're not in the game, if we're not at the table, well, we're not making the rules. And I think this will hurt our presence and power in East Asia. But I also talk about it in the follow-up with the work with Mexico and Canada and North America, the North America theme. Another one that I think is really overlooked is Britain is now at, a, at an interesting juncture, having left the European Union. You know, and will it, in a sense, slip back to become Little England, or will it be a global player? And I would be arguing for a North America-UK trade negotiation that really build cutting-edge standards in, in the new fields, whether it be environmental topics, whether it be in, in technology, whether it be in some of the digital field, that really could help set standards. But so far, the administration has been rather sluggish on it. And by the way, that's a topic that I think you get both Republican and Democratic support. And to help on the Democratic policy side, you could sometimes the U.S. labor unions have complained about labor practices in countries. Well, it's a little hard to believe you can't trust the labor unions in Britain. They are probably stronger than the labor unions in the U.S. Indeed. And then I also talk about the global negotiations and the WTO, which have, have come apart. So what I tried to do in that piece was to really highlight, in a sense, one of the themes of the book, which is 
trade policy is much more than individual transactions and economic efficiency. It's a key part of America's interaction with the world. So if Biden isn't isn't moving that forward, he's got a big gap. Well, and as you pointed out in your book very poignantly, I thought that's actually trade being a particular pillar of American interest, national interest, recognized all the way back with Alexander Hamilton back at the founding of our country. Right. And that still remains a absolutely perennially relevant point of American foreign policy. And for the last question of the day, I'm going to make it a two-part question. It's a little, it's a little broad, but I think it's an important way to, to close out this discussion forward-looking manner. Uh, One part would be abroad, one part would be more domestic. The abroad piece would be, obviously, a question consistently on people's minds. You you mentioned trade with Britain being a bipartisan opportunity. Another bipartisan opportunity seems to be crafting a policy towards China. And again, time at the World Bank, sir, in the past, as well as U.S. Trade Rep and, and time at the State Department, you know, maybe unpack a bit of how America should approach a, a strategic rival whose ideology is conflicting with our own values whose economy is nearing parity with our own, yet with whom we must also conduct massive trade. And, and within that, maybe we can keep an eye to, is this an opportunity domestically, the domestic half of the question, to re-engage our citizens' interest in connecting with the world at large and, and retaining a global leadership role, which has been a debate during the Trump years and, and more recently? Yeah, well, let's start where you ended, which is that I think in dealing with China, or frankly, sort of, any major challenge globally, our strength has to start at home. So this is the question of our economy, our politics, our society. I would argue our adherence to our own constitutional rights and provisions because they set a standard for the world. But there's an equally important notion of this where my feeling is that the last administration, in a sense, tried to follow some of China's methods in in an effort of trying to compete with China. Hmm. And you can't you can't compete with China through controls and you can't compete with china by shutting things off so american strength traditionally is its openness its openness to ideas to goods to people to capital to innovation and the flexibility of our private sector so take the question of of chinese students in the united states you know of course you have to be worried about espionage and you have to properly watch out for those things But I think it's a huge mistake to shut off American universities to students from around the world. Because what I've seen around in diplomacy or business is that that those become incredible sort of uh, connectors for the United States in, in later years. Then the second part, building on our discussion about alliances, is focusing on your alliance and partner relationships. So as we talked about with Bush 41 and and with Baker, and keep an eye on what your core objectives. And then the third part is where the Trump administration, frankly, got focused simply on a bilateral trade package that was a form of managed trade and hasn't produced much. But then at the end, it basically took a strategy of simply confrontation. And I think you need a strategy that includes deterrence, on the security side, competition, but also cooperation. So in this case, people who think you can contain China, like you can contain the Soviet Union, that's just a fallacy. It won't work in the region. And then one other part, and this is a more controversial topic, but there's a a sense that the new conventional wisdom in the United States is, well, we tried to cooperate with China and it failed. And that's just flat wrong historically. So if you take issues like security or frankly, you know, I worked with the Chinese to get them to support sanctions on Iran or dealing with proliferation. If you look over 10 or 15 years, I think 
China agreed with the United States on something like 182 out of 190 UN Security Council resolutions, including things like the first Gulf War, where at least they abstained in the process. Or when I was dealing with with genocide in Darfur, I got the Chinese to use some of their leverage to push the government in Sudan and to support us in the UN. On the economic topic, during the global financial crisis in 2008, China had actually sort of the biggest global stimulus program. They quit manipulating their exchange rate and allowed it to sort of work with the market. They had a current account surplus of about 10%, which went down to zero, which means they were buying goods from the rest of the world. They were, for 15 years, the fastest growing export market for the United States until the Trump administration. Now, my point isn't that all was well with China. Far from it. And in fact, I often use a little story that when Xi Jinping came into office in 2012, he created a documentary film about the end of the Soviet Union. And unlike a film that might have been shown in Germany, in his film, Gorbachev is the fool that abandoned the Communist Party and broke up his country. Mm. And the not-so-subtle message is, it won't happen here. Yes. So undoubtedly, Xi Jinping you know, has moved towards greater control of the party and the state system. But my point is, if you think about issues like climate or biological security or economics or even dealing with security questions, you really think you're going to be successful if you just sort of make China into a total confrontation and enemy. So another part of our policy has to be to modernize our defense capabilities for the type of deterrence in the Asia-Pacific. It's not going to be aircraft carriers totally like it was before. You're going to rely much more on submersibles and different networks of different technology. And then the last point, going back to ideological rivalry, in trying to find areas where you deter but also compete and work with China, I do not mean the U.S. should give up its position on values. I have a chapter on Ronald Reagan at the end of the Cold War, and part of his appeal was he used freedom as an aspiration. If you watched the last year in the administration, they were they were focusing on freedom as a club, a way to insult China. Mm. And, and frankly, the reaction of the average Chinese person is quite hostile if you're being treated that way. Now, there's a good example would be, obviously, China is trying to roll back the rule of law in Hong Kong. But rather than simply just use sanctions on people, I like the approach that Britain has taken, which is to create opportunities for people from Hong Kong to come to the United States. What better way to show the difference between free and authoritarian societies? So, I mean, to to pull it together, when people talk about China, they get frustrated or they see it as an enemy and they want to confront it. You have to be careful here. We don't want to push ourselves into a, a brink of conflict. You want to have deterrence, but you also want to find ways where you can cooperate. And the best way to do that is strength at home and build your allies and partnerships. You know, and to close out, it really reminds me of a, a line that you include in your chapter, The Balancer of Power on Theodore Roosevelt. You close it, the final sentence in the chapter says, Roosevelt understood that an active U.S. foreign policy had to be built upon the foundation of both military might, and that's something we've seen a lot in recent decades, but you also mentioned and the pride of the American people in assuming a global role, and that's that domestic strength and that, that visionary exhibition of freedom as an ideal, as you mentioned, from Reagan, and, and hopefully we see that applied to China as well and our allies around the world in the years and decades to come. But, sir, it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on board the New Diplomatist Podcast. It's been a privilege to have your book. I encourage every reader to go out and purchase a copy immediately. Again, the title is America and the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, obviously available Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you get 
your books from. Again, Mr. Robert B. Zolik, thank you so much for coming on board the New Diplomatist podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, Garrison, and good luck to you and your readers. I'm glad you enjoy the subject. Thank you very much.